Backup microphones are rolling. Episode 8, The Blair Witch Project. I'm not going to clap. I'm going to snap. <laughs> if you like the podcast, don't forget to check us out on Instagram at What Happens in the Crypt. We're also on Spotify, YouTube, and Apple Podcasts. Campers, backpackers, adventurers, and ghost hunters. This is episode 8 of What Happens in the Crypt. Today we're talking about the 1999 found footage movie, The Blair Witch Project. This was written and directed by Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez. I saw this movie for the first time when I was probably 7 or 8. My family used to have a trailer that we used to go camping in, and we had a really old TV with, like, a built-in VHS player, and my brother, who is five years older than me, so he was, like, 13 at the time, and I was probably eight, um, made me and my sister watch this while we were camping in the middle of the woods, and it was terrifying. Uh, he even went as far as to actually, like, place the stones outside <laughs> of the camper. So not only were we far too young to watch this movie, but we were totally terrified. And then when we got up in the morning, there were little piles of rocks. And when I mentioned this to my mom that we were talking about this movie today, she mentioned that he also used to tie up little Blair Witch things around our backyard, and he basically just terrorized us. But this movie holds a special place in my heart <laughs> for that reason. I remember my parents going to see this when I was five, and I remember they had a hard time sleeping afterwards, and they still bring it up any time that this movie is mentioned. Later, when I was about 11, my dad had me watch it. And at the time, I mean, I liked it, but I was so afraid that I probably didn't sleep for a week. And when I was younger, we went camping a lot. And my dad, his new favorite thing to do when we went camping was he would go off into the woods without telling anybody. Nobody would notice. And he would cry like a baby. And he is very good at crying like a baby. And it would terrify us. I remember me and my brother... At first, the first time he did it, we would cry. And then after that, we would still be so afraid that we would like cover, hide in our tents and cover our heads with a sheet. And if we had friends with us, they would cry. It was horrifying. For trigger warnings for this movie, um, there is a little bit of gore and graphic imagery, as well as like there are moments that are claustrophobic, and this does revolve around people getting lost in the woods. So if that's something that's unsettling for you, then this is not a movie for you to watch. A quick synopsis for this movie is that three students head out into the woods to make a documentary about the Blair Witch. They disappear. Years later, the lost footage is found and compiled with the funding from Heather's mother to help find her daughter and friends. Something that we didn't know before we started researching this movie was that they actually released a full-length documentary about the fake Blair Witch before this movie came out which we watched and it truly is so something that I would have watched at the time. And it really adds to the validity of the actual Blair Witch Project movie. You can actually watch it for free on Tubi. 
This documentary feels so real because it features multiple fake news broadcasts, interviews with historians, but in true History Channel sci-fi fashion, they interview multiple historians, some of which have opposing views. The legend of the Blair Witch is long and involved, and, and in my opinion, it's mostly just stories to scare children. Right, and the argumentative aspect of it really makes it feel real. And, like, you know, around Halloween, when they are showing, like, every tiny documentary that exists about any place that's haunted, this is something that I would have watched, I would have believed, I would have totally fallen into <laughs> the trap that they laid for this movie. It even goes as far as to interview fake police that worked, quote-unquote, worked on the case. And even search party volunteers. They right. thought of everything. Right. It seriously feels super real. There's scenes where they're interviewing parents. There are scenes where they're interviewing, you know, brothers, sisters, best friends, girlfriends of these teens that have gone missing. And even when they do the interviews with the siblings and girlfriends and significant others, it takes place with, like, the school as a backdrop where... Um, Heather, Mike, and Josh went to school, so it's like, oh my god, they just went to the college and were like, we're looking for this girl in connection with this case, and it made it feel really realistic. The search of the three missing Montgomery College students continues in Frederick County tonight. Ten days and thousands of man-hours have been unable to produce any clues. We have a few leads, um, a few other options we want to take advantage of, and just try to put together some, uh, some pieces to this puzzle. Do you believe the occult may be involved in the disappearance of your son? Also in true low-budget doc fashion, there's all these, like, pictures of the Blair Witch and, like, paintings, drawings. They did a lot of research and detail into this. They probably watched dozens of documentaries for inspiration. Even the supposed, like, experts in the documentary, like, they don't seem like actors. Like, you can tell, like, one of the guys has, like, a stutter and stumbles over his words, and that just really adds to making him feel like a real person. Just the amount of work that they actually put into creating this just one-hour-length documentary is totally insane. The occult Wiccan guy, he was really weird, but I Super thought he was- weird. <laughs> yeah, but he was a really interesting character. I don't even really understand what his purpose was. He just repeated some of the same lore, but they were like, it was the 70s when this came out. Yeah, I feel like his character was supposed to be the one who was like, this is all true. This is exactly how it happened and all that. They even had an expert that explained how the backpack was completely undisturbed and hidden under like several layers of earth so like there's an ashy top layer and then there was like a mud second layer but that there was like no hole that was dug it was just like essentially supernaturally magically in between all these layers of earth anybody who would have seen this doc would have but like there's no doubt that they would have believed it like people that were really into this kind of stuff they would have totally thought that this was real it hints at the supernatural aspects without leaning too hard into it so it's like yes this backpack is in a weird spot we can't explain it but they're not saying it's witches or magic so that kind of adds to it too they just go into such fine detail that like you wouldn't even think if you were lying 
They even have interviews with, like, townspeople whose families have lived there for generations, so they know the story. And they even go as far as making a fake book that was found in 1807, right. bound in leather, and was roughed up, but had, like, accounts of people seeing the witch and Wiccan rituals and stuff. Mm-hmm. Between the doc and the movie, they really created an in-depth lore of who the Blair Witch was. And they said her name was Ellie Kedward, an Irish woman who was accused in 1785 of witchcraft, who was then banished to the woods in the middle of winter. She was tied to a tree and left to die of exposure. Ellie Kedward was based off of a real-life occultist whose name was Edward Kelly, and he apparently was able to summon angels in mirrors and transmute base metals into gold, and he was um, famous in Europe during, like, the 1700s. He also claimed to own the Philosopher's Stone. While there were no special effects in this movie, there were a lot of great props. The stone piles were genius and added suspense. The stick figures in the trees were a great next step and really ramped up the fact that it was an intelligent entity that was in the woods with them. They end up finding a bundle of sticks that contain real human teeth, and that really adds to the horror of the movie. That scene absolutely terrified me also when she finds the bundle. The beginning of the movie was actually found in the town of Burkittsville. And all of the scenes in the woods were filmed in Seneca Street State Park, which is about 40 miles away. After the movie came out and it was so popular, the town of Burkittsville had to actually change their sign because it kept getting stolen. It's like this very like gothic calligraphy-esque sign that says, Welcome to Burkittsville. And so they started turning it into like a patriotic version where it was red, white, and blue to deter people from coming to town and stealing their sign. I mean, it worked. I don't want to steal a red, white, and blue sign. I just want the gothic one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the old house at the end of the movie was known as the Griggs House. It was estimated to be built in 1800 in Granite, Maryland. It was a real house, so it was not built for the movie. And after filming, it was torn down. This movie was filmed on two separate cameras. Two separate cameras on two separate styles of film. They actually shot this movie in eight days, but it took over eight months to edit. In some notes that I found, they said that they had shot about 20 hours of film. While having a relatively small production budget, this led to an actually very large editing budget. The script was 35 pages with almost no dialogue written other than specific plot points. The directors really wanted the actors to improvise most of the scenes. When the directors interviewed people to be a part of the movie, instead of having them act out a scene, they immediately jumped into improv, and their question was something like, you've been in prison for 10 years, we're the parole board, tell us why you should be let out of prison. And they said the reason they picked Heather was because she showed no expression and she looked right at them and said, I don't deserve to be let out. The scenes in the beginning that were shot in the town were a perfect example of this. The three of them had to try to interview people about the Blair Witch, but they had no idea who was an actor and who was truly just a person that lived in Burkittsville. So if they went into a coffee shop, they would quietly, casually ask people if they could ask them questions and they'd just have to find the person that was the actor. 
yeah, the directors of this movie had certain people planted, but the 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 cast, the actors, did not know who. They were given no clues as to who was an actor and who was literally just a, a civilian, a random person that had no idea what was happening. It's truly like the adult version of a scavenger hunt <laughs> like exactly like when you're a kid that you have to find certain people and certain things that makes sense and there's actually no way of us knowing even in the final movie who was an actor and who was just a regular person right i'm sure that they had to ask them to like sign a waiver of some sort or get their permission to be on film and then if they just said i don't know what the blair witch is <laughs> then they were just a regular person i'm sure it is mostly the actors but i wonder mhm cuz people any person if they interviewed like my dad yeah <laughs> he would come up with something right <laughs> The way they made this work, as far as it seeming like there was no crew involved in this movie, is that they actually were completely alone. The directors gave the three actors a GPS, and they would essentially guide them to certain points. So it might be two miles away, it could have been five miles away, but they would know where they were going, and they'd have really loose ideas of what kind of conversations and dialogue they were supposed to film. When they got to the GPS location, there would actually be a milk crate there with film canisters, and they would all get one, and they'd have really loosely based notes of what they wanted them to film for the next like few hours or the next day, and it would be something as simple as, like, Heather, you're going to demand that we have to go south no matter what, and then Josh would get a note that would say, you do not want to go south. <laughs> the directors would purposely make them fight and argue. Even going as far as giving them less and less food throughout the shooting. On top of being marched around in the woods with these truly heavy backpacks, they were slowly making them even angrier by only giving them granola bars instead of sandwiches as the days progressed. One of the most memorable scenes is where they've been hiking all day and they end up back at the same stream that they had previously crossed. So they had like been going one direction all day and they actually did this on purpose. And the actors didn't know that the GPS location they were following was forcing them to go around in a circle. So their reaction in that scene was pretty genuine. Of course, they're still acting, but they still were like, how did we end up back at the same point? And it kind of leads you to think that maybe they thought they were actually getting lost there. That's the tree we crossed. That tree is down. That's the same one. Oh, God! No. Oh, no. You've got to be kidding me! This is a joke! No. No, Mike, it's not the same log. It's not the same log, Mike. Same log. Look, it's not. It is! Open your eyes! The actors had a safe word, taco, so that they could talk as themselves and remind each other that this was just a movie. Because this was so physically demanding and they were being forced to act at all times, I have to imagine they needed those moments to be like, okay, I'm actually Josh the person, I'm not Josh <laughs> the film dude, and we are really just out here having a hard time, but this is a movie and we are working on it, as opposed to getting really sucked in. Yeah, they were definitely, they had to take small breaks at least, just to keep their sanity. Eight days you know, when you're just sitting around thinking about it, you're like, oh, that's not that long. But when you're living it, eight days can be a long, long time. And backpacking is really hard. And it's something that I've done a couple of times. You and I have done together once. 
Um, it's intense and it really is labor inducive and you get tired and you get crabby for real. So on top of that, imagine having to like act as a different person or pretend that you were doing something else just sounds super hard. Heather's parents were also really hesitant for her to join the project because of the premise of her being alone in the woods with two strange men, and they thought that maybe she was getting tricked into a snuff film. And Heather has said in interviews that her parents actually told her to take a knife with her, and she did. I mean, imagine it. It's not only you're being put into the woods with two strange men, it's also two strange men plus other men that you don't know are nearby watching you <laughs> knowing your GPS location. Hiding in the woods. Hiding in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> also filming you. <laughs> yeah, it's not a comforting feeling, I'm, I'm sure, as a parent. Right. <laughs> what? The directors and creators wanted this to feel real. They even went as far as to put out missing posters for all of the actors. My parents even thought it was real when they were going to see it. They thought that three teens had been missing for three years, and these were the tapes that were recovered. Right, and I think that's what everyone thought at the time, and this was really when the internet was still kind of new, and IMDB was a new thing, and they also went as far as to list all of Heather, Josh, and Mike as either deceased or missing on their IMDB pages. And actual police departments thought it was real as well. Right, they would call the directors to ask if there's anything they could do to help. Heather's mom also received sympathy cards after the movie was released just from random strangers, like, saying sorry for your loss. And I just want to apologize to Mike's mom and Josh's mom and my mom. I am so, so sorry because it is my fault. Because it was my project. This is really the first movie to do this, and it's probably the only movie that will be able to pull it off on such a big, uh, on such a large scale. Truly, when I talked to my mom about this, she even asked me if, in our research, <laughs> if we had determined if the movie was real or not, which made me laugh really hard just because she still, she's 60, doesn't know if the movie is real. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure she's not the only one. Right. They did such a good job. They did so much backstory. They did so much press and the missing posters, the documentary. Like, they really convinced people that it was a, not a movie, that it was real footage. Right. And then, of course, they also launched that website. So the website went live in June of 98, which was before Sundance premiered the movie. Um, and it had a biography of each of the filmmakers. It showed evidence photos. Oh, yeah. It had, had like the tapes all laid yeah, out. It had evidence photos and it also had like very low resolution interviews with like police. And as any anyone that would have gone on that website would have found it valid because it was so like low budget looking. Oh, yeah, and it had uh, Heather's Journal, didn't it? Right, and that was the only place I've ever seen that is that website. And so that also provided a backup for, like, the movie coming out because the whole premise, like, in a quiet way was that Heather's mom was paying for them to put the footage out there to try and find her daughter or find the killers and so they also had all of these journal entries from heather that they apparently found in the backpack with the tapes 
One thing that had to change on the fly was that Josh wasn't supposed to die first. Josh and Heather got into so many arguments in real life while filming this that he ultimately was left with another film canister with instructions that said he should just get up and leave in the middle of the night and that they would take him home because they wanted him out of it. It would have been a totally different movie if the character Mike would have died first. Right. Mike seemed like the really argumentative one, but him and Heather definitely bonded more so (laughs) than her and Josh. That whole scene where Josh is in her face, like, what's your motivation? What are you going to do? That was all improvised as well. He essentially was left with a note that just said you're going to get in Heather's face. (laughs) Josh's fate wasn't the only scene that was left on the fly. In the end of the movie, uh, Heather and Mike get to the house She walks into the basement, and we see Mike standing in the corner. But they ultimately had a couple other really graphic, more so jarring graphic endings that they almost used instead. You can actually find all of the endings online. The sound is not too great, and the lead-up is the same for all of them. But one of the endings, you she rounds the corner, and you just see Mike hanging there. Right. It's really spooky and it's like too much. One of the other endings shows Mike kind of crucified on one of the wood figures, but it's life size. Yeah. All of the endings kind of include the wooden figures hanging from the ceiling a lot more. Even the one that I found more unsettling than the hanging in the crucifying was the exact same ending except when heather rounds the corner mike is facing her and there are little wooden figures hanging from the ceiling and so it's like instead of seeing the back of his head she locks eyes with him and screams and then gets knocked out and for some reason that one was significantly spookier yeah ultimately i'm happy with the ending that they chose though because it wasn't too over the top it wasn't too much all the other ones had like the basement filled with those Blair Witch symbols. And I didn't appreciate those as much. Right. And it also would lean too much into the supernatural because that's what makes this movie believable is that like you're aware that it's supposed to be a witch character, but she's not casting any spells. Nothing magical is happening, but things are scary. But if he was crucified or with those things hanging from the ceiling so randomly it kind of leans too far into a separate direction yeah there's technically nothing in this movie that a normal person couldn't have done exactly and that really makes it feel real because even at the end it's like was it a witch or was it someone from town that was really annoyed with them and was just following them there was a blair witch too which truthfully neither of us have ever seen but it has horrible reviews and it was directed by joe berlinger who directed that horrible piece of shit zach efron ted bundy movie what was it called doesn't matter it was the worst didn't even finish it and that movie was garbage so i'm sorry if anyone is a fan of his for some bizarre reason but i think he apologize to those people (laughs) he sucks and i don't want to watch that movie nope there was also a reboot sequel to this movie that came out in 2016. And this one was actually produced by Sanchez and Murek, 
Um, and you can definitely feel their stamp on this one. I personally liked it. It definitely leans more into jump scares and the supernatural parts. There's a decent amount of CGI. It's not so much. It doesn't feel found footage. It feels like a like CGI movie. This movie didn't get as high reviews as the original Blair Witch, but they're, I mean, they're not horrible. Maybe I mean, it's not for me, but <laughs> it's kind of a fun watch, but I'm also a sucker for found footage and I'll pretty much watch any of them. For this movie, there were three filmmaker fatalities. Josh, whose teeth are found in a bundle. It's all full of blood. Mike, who falls prey to the witch. The last you see of him is him facing the corner. I hear you, Josh. I'm going upstairs. Come on. I hear him downstairs. Come on, Josh. And Heather, who ultimately we don't know her exact fate, but she gets hit and knocked to the ground while in the basement of the house. This movie surprises me every time I watch it. It, I don't know if it gets better and better, but for some reason in the back of my head, I'm always like, yeah, this is a good movie. And I kind of leave it at that. But then I watch it and I'm like, wait, no, holy shit. This is a really good movie. I think <laughs> yeah. it actually might be one of my top five favorite movies. And honestly, after watching the documentary and realizing how they set this movie up to feel so real, it really makes me appreciate it a lot more. And because of like watching it as a kid, it's always been in my like top 10 of movies, I would say. But truly, after the documentary alone, it's probably now in my top five. I remember watching it together. The first time we watched this movie together, we were camping. Right. You have to be. That's part of the fun. And I think that that was imprinted on me at a young age. But we were actually in a cabin in the woods and we watched it and it was spooky. This movie has the perfect amount of horror and mystery. I love that there's no corny CGI. You don't see the witch. It's just kind of, you know, left here imagination. Although... I will add right now that originally you were supposed to see a quick glimpse of the witch when um, they're looking for Josh. Right. It's that scene where the tent shakes and they take off running and it's like Heather in view running away and she starts screaming, what the fuck was that? They actually had someone out there. It was supposed to be a woman in a white gown that they were supposed to catch on camera, but there was a literal malfunction and it kind of was a they never blessing in footage. disguise. Yeah. I'm so happy for that because that's one of the things I love about this movie. A faceless monster is way scarier than something that you can see. This is currently not available on any streaming sites like Netflix or Hulu. Um, you can pay like $4 to watch it on YouTube, but I actually own the DVD. <laughs> For next week's episode, we're going to be talking about An American Werewolf in London, a seriously fun creature feature with one of our favorite werewolf transitions ever. This 1981 film has some of my favorite practical effects ever and is another one of my favorite movies. It'll be a howling good time. Ah!